according to His promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, this morning in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, down to the end of the chapter. We're actually halfway through the chapter. But we're rapidly heading to the close of chapter 9 and uh, the crossover into chapter 10. I'm going to pick up uh, where we left off a couple of weeks ago, in, uh, or even three weeks ago now, wow, in uh, dealing with the mediator of the new covenant in verses 15 through 17, and then uh, pick up with the very important concepts that we have to deal with in verses 18 and following, the uh, blessings of the new covenant that has been promised to the nation of Israel at the second advent of Jesus Christ. And so we want to be very clear on these things. And particularly because uh, a lot of churches today will take the approach that the new covenant belongs to us, belongs to the church, uh, either instead of Israel or before Israel, in addition to Israel. Uh, there's a lot of confusion related to the new covenant. So we're going to make sure that this flock is not so confused. Let's uh, take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for His faithfulness, for His blessings upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before You this morning thankful for grace and truth. In calling upon Your faithfulness, Father, I thank You that the Word of God is a spiritual endeavor. It's not an earthly study. It's not uh, something whereby uh, smarter people can figure it out faster. Father, it's, it's a spiritual endeavor. It's not about how smart we are, it's how faithful you are. The, the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, can lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. And so, Father, we call upon your faithfulness once again on this day to uh, humble us, to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, this is really a marvelous chapter that's contrasting the old with the new, that's contrasting how things used to be and, uh, and how things are going to be. And the how things used to be, of course, with the tabernacle, with Solomon's temple, with Ezra's temple, or in Jesus' day they called it Herod's temple. Um, at that time, when the author of Hebrews is writing this, that temple is still in operation. It's not yet been destroyed by the Romans as it will be destroyed in 70 A.D., but in going back and talking about the first and what they had contrasting with what we have in Christ is, is very powerful. And uh, we'll have some more things to say about that uh, as we wrap the chapter up. But in the contrast between that and this, uh, it's, it's pretty stark. So uh, let's just uh, try to fix our bearings here. Verse 11 says, "...when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come..." He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. When God had Moses build the tabernacle, he actually showed him blueprints from the heavenly temple, right? He showed Moses blueprints, a pattern, and said, this is what the temple looks like in heaven. So build a copy on earth. And that's what Moses did. The tabernacle is a replica of the heavenly temple. And then Solomon's temple, likewise, it was larger, but to scale, and it was on the same pattern, the same uh, order and direction and pattern as the, as the heavenly reality. And so um, recognize that the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple was just a replica. 
It was representing truth, but it was not the true place of worship, which is in heaven before the Father's throne. And so that's an important difference. Likewise, verse 12, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. When Aaron or any other high priest had to go into the holy place, into the replica holy place, he had to go with blood, not his own. He went with blood of an animal as a substitute. And then he went in on the Day of Atonement, just one man, one day a year, had to go in with with the blood of an animal as a substitute and go in there and accomplish the replica, not the reality, of of what Jesus accomplished after the cross. And, And then when he was done, he came back out put his priestly uniform back on again, and uh, he was good for another year. And he would do it again next year. Every year, here it comes again, the Day of Atonement, here it comes again, okay? Not so with Jesus. With Jesus, it was once and for all. He went to the cross, he purchased our redemption, he went to the cross, he accomplished everything there, at least three functions that he accomplished there on the cross. And then when he ascended to the Father's throne to appear before us, it was once and for all. He doesn't have to do it again and again and again. And that's going to be, that's a point that's going to be made if I get past this uh, little bubble here. And we can get down to uh, verses 25 and 26. The author of Hebrews is making the point that I'm making right now. And so we'll get there and let him make it in, uh, in his way. All right. So the fact is that in the Levitical offerings, there was bodily cleansing with Jesus. There's the conscience cleansing, the totality of our conscience towards God. And so in verse 14, when it says, Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And that is so powerful. And it has two applications. It applies to us in the church age, and it will apply to Israel in the millennial kingdom. All right. And so we're going to understand it on this basis. The fact is that you and I operate in the living sacrifice department because you and I are in Christ. And so Christ died and rose again and he sits at the Father's right hand. You and I function right there in the heavenly places at the Father's right hand. We are in Christ presenting ourselves before the Father as living sacrifices. Nobody this morning brought a goat. I'm just double checking, looking across the room. No goats anywhere in this room. No sheep, no bulls, no... We're not killing animals here today. There's no reason to kill animals here today. Jesus Christ fulfilled. He's the end of the law for all who believe. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill. And we in Christ don't need the animal sacrifices to teach us shadow doctrine. We have the substance that is Christ. We are believer priests of the church age in the heavenly places. Well, guess what? In the millennial kingdom, when Israel is brought into the new covenant, they also are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth they also are going to have a basis to function in a living sacrifice kind of way. Israel will have the Holy Spirit in the millennial kingdom like you and I have the Holy Spirit today. And so there's analogous issues here to study, not to confuse the two, but to keep them distinct, yet while seeing ours is comparable to what they will have someday. And I hope that makes sense. All right. And so cleansing your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. On that basis, as evidenced by the fact that we're here doing what we're doing now, is evidence that we have a Savior in the heavenly places, our advocate before the Father. Now, for this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant. 
And this now, the, the for this reason and the transition that happens here in verse 15 takes the, the argument forward to a very important place. For this reason, he is, you could say also, the mediator of a new covenant. There's like five or six times that in the book of Hebrews it has also, also, also. This is actually not one of those verses, but it could. It could have an also in there as well. And that matches all those other also's that we have throughout the book of Hebrews. So for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. All right, so that carries now the argument past the church age. That carries the argument now to Israel in the millennial kingdom. They are the heirs of promise. They are the covenant people. They are the ones that will have uh, the Messiah sitting on the throne of David, ruling over the Gentile nations. And so now we're really, we're in this section, talking about the new covenant and learning based upon how it was when Moses gave them their first covenant, what it's going to be like now when Jesus gives them the new covenant. That's the contrast. And, I, and as long as we're clear on that, we can proceed. And if, if we're not clear on that, I can teach this 50 times until we are clear on this, all right? Because the church was never under Mosaic law, ever. You and I are never under Mosaic law. The law was given to Israel by Moses. The law was what they were given in their stewardship. We're not under law, we're under grace. We are a New Testament believer priesthood in Christ, see? And so the new covenant is being given to Israel as a replacement for the Mosaic covenant, which they broke, which they broke. That's important for us to consider. All right, so then there's a bit of a side trip in a sense here in verse uh, 16 and 17, kind of amusing that it hits the same uh, you know, week that my dad passes away, but here it is, all right? Um, because the word covenant can also be translated will right? The same Hebrew word, the same Greek word, we can render it as covenant, we can render it as will. And if you're, you know, if you're, if somebody has written out a will and then they die, well then you're going to read the will and find out, all right, who gets what, what happens next and, and, and how do we, how do we proceed from here? And so the author of Hebrews kind of plays on that here in verses uh, 16 and 17 when he uses the diatheke to apply to a will and says, you know, um, where, where there's a last will and testament, you could say, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Because until he dies, it can always be changed. He can make a new will. A covenant is executed only when men are dead. It is never enforced while one who made it lives. You know, you can't just go and say, hey, let's execute the will now. I'm the executor of your estate. Let's go ahead and distribute everything. Uh, then your dad would say, well, excuse me, I'm still alive. <laughs> and uh, no, no rush on this. And uh, and why are you, I mean, he might decide that you're a little shady and, and decide to write you out of that will if he feels his life is threatened or something, you know, and, uh, and have better heirs that aren't so uh, interested in his, in his demise. Um, but it's, it's, it's remarkable, though, that the author of Hebrews switches to that, that usage just for those two verses so that he can then bring it back to the new covenant and say, well, now guess what? Someone has actually died and that will is ready to be read. And Israel is ready now to enter into the millennial kingdom. And they are more ready than ever before. You know, I mean, did you ever think about it? When, when John the Baptist came, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Well, how at hand was it back then? 2,000 years ago, 
How at hand was it when he was preaching that? Well, the king was about to arrive on the scene, and he did arrive on the scene, and then Jesus started preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it was, I believe, legitimately at hand, imminently, until Israel rejected their Messiah and crucified him. And then the kingdom became postponed, became delayed. Well, now, how at hand is it? Because a death has taken place. So now that blood has been shed, it's now just ready to be sprinkled. It's ready to be sprinkled. And that's, I think, the impact that we have here. So then verse 18 says, Therefore even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Now Moses didn't have to die, but an animal died. Several animals died. And when Mosaic law was given, it was given with the shedding of blood. So even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. This becomes so important. The book was sprinkled, then the people were sprinkled. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And if that sounds familiar, it comes from Exodus, but Jesus quoted it when he gave communion on that last, in that upper room discourse on the night in which he was betrayed. So in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Okay, so here we're, we're past the old material from three weeks ago and now we're... Uh, we're going to gain new ground with the concepts as they're presented here. Some uh, points of study then for verses 18 through 21. Because clearly the author here is teaching about new covenant, but he's using Exodus to do it. He's teaching new covenant, and he's already brought his readers through Jeremiah 31. We're already clear that this is with Israel after the tribulation. But now he's going back to Exodus to give more details. And this gets so overlooked, particularly by the crowd, the replacement theology folks, that want to just dismiss Israel forever and put the church in place of Israel for everything the the Bible says about new covenant blessings and, and everything else. But he uses Exodus to do it. All right. Mosaic covenant did not require the death of Moses, but feature the death of animal substitutes and applied that sacrificial blood for temporal cleansing and forgiveness. Here's where we're going to take Hebrews 9, 18 through 22, and we're going to relate it very clearly, as the author of Hebrews does, to Exodus 24, verses 5 through 8. Mosaic covenant did not require the death of Moses. The new covenant does require the death of Christ, no question. Okay, But the Mosaic covenant did not require the death of Moses, but featured the death of an animal substitute, several animal substitutes, and applied that sacrificial blood for temporal cleansing and forgiveness. By temporal, I mean within time. Temporal, physical, external cleansing and forgiveness. And so we have the verses we just finished reading. We're going to go back here in a moment and turn to Exodus 24. And as we do, pay close attention to the blood that is applied immediately and the blood that is set aside to be applied later. Exodus 24, 
Those are critical, critical details. And I think the author of Hebrews is bringing that to our attention when he talks about where the blood is sprinkled. Where the blood is sprinkled. He's going to to do this in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. Talk about the sprinkled blood. Even Abel, Cain and Abel, Abel had sprinkled blood that's still speaking today where the blood of Jesus speaks better than the blood of Abel. We'll get to that in Hebrews chapter 11. All right. So the, the terminology that I like to use include the shedding of blood and the application of blood. And those are different aspects. When the animal dies, his blood is shed. But when the blood is sprinkled, it's applied. And if you can separate out the shedding from the application, I think you're miles ahead of a lot of theologians that really just conflate the two and mash it all together. Because we all, all of us, (laughs) let's face it, if you're here in this room today and you have eternal life, it's because the blood of Jesus Christ was shed 2,000 years ago. Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, if you want to give it a Gregorian date. Um, That blood was shed nearly 2,000 years ago. But it was applied, when was it applied? On that moment you accepted Christ for your Savior. Yeah, the moment you believed. When you believe in Christ, that blood that was shed then gets applied. And then it saves you and you're cleansed and you're provided eternal life. So the, the shedding and the application become important studies. Uh, so take your uh, bubblegum wrapper or your, your church bulletin or your little Bible ribbon or just your finger if you want. Leave your, spe- leave your place there in Hebrews chapter 9. And let's go back to Exodus 24. Since the author of Hebrews is using this text as the basis of his doctrine, we want to likewise... There's a lot that happens here. This includes, uh, this is so early, this even includes Arab, uh, uh, Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, plus Eliezer and Ithamar, the two that died and the two that lived later. But um, the four sons of Aaron plus Aaron, Mo, that's Moses' brother and his nephews. And um, we'll just pick up here. Because they have anticipation and they have statements they're, they're very boastful. In verse 3, Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? They vow to keep the law. And if you have ever read the Old Testament, you know how poorly they did with that for most of their history. All right. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning. So there's a verbal agreement, and then it gets put in writing. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, where's the church in any of this? Nowhere. Gotcha. Okay. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. So there's a role for the elders, and there's a role for the young men. And you want your young men doing what young men need to be doing. (laughs) The older men can uh, do what they need to be doing. And so Moses took, now notice, they sacrificed young bulls. There is a death. There's a lot of death. Sacrificing young bulls, I think one per tribe. And there's the death. Now, some people would say, well, then that's it. That's the end of the doctrine. We're done. 
the bull died, Jesus died on the cross, we're done, right? That's the whole picture. It's not the whole picture. What happens next? Well, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So understand what he did here. Here's the blood of these sacrificial animals. And remember, the analogy is the death of Jesus on the cross. So think about the blood of Christ, what it did and what it still needs to do. Because it hasn't been done yet. It's been set aside in basins or in a little bowl. Okay? And so it's been set aside. It's like some of your recipes when you're cooking in the kitchen, right? Which I don't do, but I've seen my wife do this kind of stuff. Okay? My mother told me back when I was in the army, she said, you better re-enlist or get married. Because she understood I wasn't going to physically live very long based on my own cooking. All right. So you're preparing different dishes, and then there's some things that you set aside and say, I'm going to need this later. Okay? And then it comes back later. So Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Jesus, we know, when he ascended to heaven, what did he do? He took his blood and he cleansed the heavenly temple, sprinkling it on the altar like we see here. But that's only with part of the blood. He still has a whole other set of blood set aside that hasn't been applied yet. And um, then he took the uh, book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Now the language is identical to what they said before the blood was shed. The language was identical. Yes, we will do it. But it was before the blood was shed. Now the blood has been shed. Now the altar has been cleansed. Now the people agree to the, to the stipulations and they enter into the covenant. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So you think about Israel before Christ came. Israel before Christ came felt very righteous and felt very appropriate and the king is coming and okay, here we go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in a sense, you know, you could think that the Jewish people were ready for their kingdom, in a sense, saying, all the Lord has spoken we will do, until John the Baptist started preaching repent and calling them brood of vipers, and Jesus started preaching repent and called them brood of vipers, and then the religious leaders get all offended, and then, they, uh, then they're not so quick to do what he tells them to do. Instead, they want him dead, and they killed him, all right? So now the blood has been shed, and before it can be sprinkled, once again, Israel has to be brought to a place where they, as a nation, will say, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Eschatologically, of course, they have to look upon him whom they pierced. The Jewish nation under Antichrist tribulational persecution has to, the only Savior they have is the one they crucified 2,000 years ago. And they have to look upon him whom they pierced and call upon him so as to be saved. Then the blood can be applied. Not until then. So verse 8, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Which the Lord has made with you. 
Interesting, when Jesus quotes this text, he adapts it. He adapts it when he talks about he's teaching communion, he's teaching the apostles about the blood of the covenant. And he says it was just poured out for many, but he doesn't say for you specifically, the men that he was looking at in that room. All right. So the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses went up. I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself here, but this is, uh, it's worthwhile. Yeah, hold off. All right. <laughs> so are we clear on the picture? How Moses gave them the law? Because that's the pattern for how Jesus is going to give Israel the new covenant. Moses gave them the law, animals died. Jesus giving the new covenant, Jesus died. Moses giving the, new, the old covenant, blood was applied to the altar and to the book of the covenant itself. And to the tabernacle, to the furnishings, to the, to the uh, beyond Exodus 24 we learn that the, that same sacrificial blood was applied to the implements, to the furnishings, to the uniforms, to even the tent pegs, and the, everything. If it was cleansed, it was cleansed by this blood. Jesus died on the cross, rose again on the third day, ascended to heaven. He did not go to the earthly replica. He ascended to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple. He cleansed the heavenly altar, the heavenly vestments, the heavenly tent pegs. I mean, just everything. He cleansed the heavenly realities. Now what remains? What remains is for him to come back to this earth and cleanse the Jewish people to take the, the half of the blood that was set aside in the basins, bringing that with him at second advent so that he can cleanse the Jewish people. But until they say, until they agree to the new covenant, until they look upon him whom they pierced, he can't come back. Jesus even prophesied that in the Olivet Discourse, that the nation has to repent and, and, and quote Psalm 116 to come back. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. When Israel was brought into the Mosaic Covenant, their priests and elders feasted with God. Their priests and their elders feasted. I believe it was in a visionary way. They feasted with God. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. So let's stay in Exodus 24 and see, well, what happens next? We, I mean, we're clear on, the, on, the, on the, the death of the animal, on half of the blood sprinkled here and the other half of the blood sprinkled here. We're clear on that. We're ready now to understand eschatologically what happens at the second advent of Jesus Christ. But then what happens? Well, there's a feast. And that shouldn't surprise us because what are we expecting in the millennium? We're expecting a feast, a great feast. Jesus even told his disciples, I'm not drinking this fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So verses 9 through 11, Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. All right, so this is not for the young men, this is not for the elders. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Now, we've got a lot of questions about this, because no one can see God and live. We've got a lot of questions about this. How did they see God? How do they eat with God? Is this really Jesus they're eating with? Is this God the Father they're eating with? And, and, and there's a lot of discrepancy. I think it was in a visionary way that they saw. It may have even been in a transfiguration kind of way 
like when Moses and Elijah were brought to the kingdom in a transfiguration event, and uh, the disciples saw that. Whatever the case is here, this is for the priests and the elders and the mediator. Remember, Moses is the mediator. Moses is as the type of Christ. I think this is God the Father in any event. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. You know, no man can see God and live, and yet they're having a feast with God right there at the head of the table. Wow. Okay? What an experience. And then it's over, because verse 12 moves on to other things. And, and uh, but So we just have one little snippet here in verses 9 through 11, where Moses, Nadab, Abihu, the four sons, uh, Eliezer, Ithamar, uh, the elders, the tribal elders. There's a whole feast going on there. I believe it's in a visionary way. I believe it's typology, it's shadow doctrine pointing forward to what the kingdom's going to bring about in a reality. And here's the flip side. When Israel will be brought into the new covenant, that's future, that's not today. If the rapture's this morning, then this is at least seven years away probably longer. When Israel will be brought into the new covenant, their priests and elders will feast with Jesus and his bride. Jesus spoke to this. In fact, there's parables that address this. Luke 22, join me there. You can probably rescue your finger from Hebrews 9. I hate hate it if you've lost blood circulation already. Luke 22. Here's the upper room. Here's, uh, we just had communion last week. You know, we talked about this and the blessings of, of the upper room and the night in which our Savior was betrayed. You know, he probably had a lot on his mind that night, getting ready to go to the cross, getting ready to accept the Father's wrath for our sin. And yet he gives the gospel to the traitor and he provides doctrine to his disciples. All right. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. If you think about it, he's over 30 years old. He's had at least four Passovers in his his gospel ministry. This one's the fourth one that we know about. And, uh, but this one's different because this is the one where he's going to die. He is the Passover lamb. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And this is, uh, this is what he's teaching them here. When you get down to verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. This is a privilege for his apostles, the apostles of the Lamb. This is the privilege for those 12. Now Judas throws it away, but Matthias takes his place. You may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The church does not replace Israel, but the church does have a relationship towards Israel. And that's a fellow reign with Christ. We are in Christ. He's the king, we're his bride, we're the queen, if you will. 
in uh, the millennial kingdom. And so this is what we have to look forward to. Every time we drink that little cup of grape juice, just sip it, drink it, and think that kingdom wine is going to be amazing. Perfect wine, new wine, and we'll be in glorified bodies. There'll be no drunkenness capacity. I mean, it's just going to be marvelous. How powerful is that going to be? And so really, we drink a toast every time we take communion. We drink a toast remembering what He did and proclaiming that he's, he's on his way. He's coming back. He's coming back to administer the rest of the blood that hasn't been administered yet. Because that half of the blood cleansed the heavenly temple. The other half is still set apart. It's ready now to be applied to the nation of Israel. Every time we take communion, it's like we, we testify to the finished work of Christ as well as the unfinished business yet to come directed towards Israel the Jewish people, the throne of David in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful thing. Church age communion is essentially a toast to the coming kingdom. We proclaim the Lord's shed blood. You know, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Well, what's that? Not just that the religious leaders hated him and executed him, no. His death, the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ, the shed blood. We proclaim the Lord's shed blood and the pending sprinkling of that blood upon the covenant nation of Israel. Still in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, poured out. There's a doctrine connected to that too. Is the new covenant in my blood. Thankfully, when we take communion, we we don't pour out the cups. (laughs) We drink the cups, right? How messy would it be if we dump all those little cups every Sunday? But think about the blood poured out. And where is it going to be poured out? When is it going to be poured out? Well, it's going to be poured out on the Jewish people. The covenant nation of Israel will receive the new covenant with the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed 2,000 years ago. And now it's just been waiting. They're on hold. God's not done with Israel. They're on hold while He calls out a bride for His Son. That's an important study as well. All right. Back to Hebrews 9. Rescue your fingers. Rescue your church bulletins or your bubblegum wrapper, whatever you put in there. I know, you got phone apps and you're just tapping glass anyway. You don't need to mark your spot. I got it. I know. Let's look at verse 22. Uh, and, and really, of all the English translations, my least favorite is the New American Standard Bible uh, on this verse, i got to say. It's my favorite English translation for almost everywhere else in the New Testament. But uh, here, um, I think they, uh, they took a liberty that I'm not comfortable taking. So I'd rather just go with the New King James or even the Old King James or the, the Christian Standard Bible. So here's the issue. The, uh, the almost... It has nothing to do with what somebody might almost say. 
It's, uh, it's almost all things. The almost is connected to the all things. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is, and almost all things, according to law, are cleansed with blood. And that's a true statement. I mean, find me something that in the Old Testament that's cleansed with something other than blood. And there's almost nothing there. It's almost everything, according to law, is cleansed with blood. And then the second statement, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So here we've got some theology, because here we're dealing with cleansing as a synonym for forgiveness. And we have the recognition that we must have positional cleansing and forgiveness, experiential cleansing and forgiveness. We must have the cleansing that only God can provide. There is so much here, but according to law, without the shedding of blood, nothing gets cleansed. Without the shedding of blood, nothing gets forgiven. And so here we are. The blood of Christ has been shed. So what can't be cleansed? What can't be forgiven? How is it you're harboring a grudge against your sister in Christ or your brother in Christ? How is it that you're not forgiving? Because the blood of Christ can forgive everything and has forgiven everything. Any sin that, that, that you think is against you is really against God anyway. And he nailed it to Jesus Christ on the cross. He's already taken it, put it in a bag, thrown it behind his back as far as the east is from the west, plunged it into the depths of the sea. He's not going to remember it ever again. But you and I, we, have, we remember things for ages when we should have forgotten them a long time ago. All right, so there's a lot to unpack related to this. But understand, blood... Blood was the cleansing and atoning physical type for almost everything under Mosaic law. And God chose that for a reason, a specific reason. Blood speaks to the life, blood speaks to the soul, and the shedding of blood speaks to the laying down of that life, the death that must occur. Blood was the cleansing and atoning physical type. And it is so counterintuitive. It is so not obvious. It is so wrong. <laughs> okay? I mean, of all the things in nature that, that humans have used over the years for cleansing, all the various soaps that we've discovered, all the various aloes and lotions, all the various herbs and all the various, I mean, for all of human history, humanity has found different products for cleansing. When has blood ever been used? You know, I've got an oil spill in my garage. Oh, quick, let me throw some blood down there and we'll, we'll sop that right up. Okay. When, when is blood, you know, I mean, face it, if you're smearing blood all over the place, you're making a mess. You're not cleaning anything. You're making a mess. And in the physical realm, that's true. But blood is cleansing in the spiritual dimension because of blood, what blood represents. And so the shedding of blood paints a picture. The shedding of blood says something's dying here. An animal in your place. You should be dying. The wages of sin is death. But a substitute's going to die instead of you. And that's the provision for the cleansing. That's the provision for the forgiveness. The key understanding for this is the connection between blood and life. The life is in the blood. That is, the soul life is in the blood. 
Leviticus 17, verse 11 and 14. Leviticus 17, which, I mean, every one of the uh, readers of Hebrews, they had a Levitical background, clearly. They were, most likely, they were Levitical priests themselves. Such is the link between Leviticus and Hebrews. Leviticus 17, verse 11. Verse 10 says, Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them. Notice you can have aliens that live in your country if you permit them to, but they're still identified as aliens and they're expected to follow your laws. The aliens who sojourn among them who eat any blood, who eats any blood. I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. And this is far more than just a recipe for how well done you got to cook your steaks. This is actually a principle. And I don't think you violate Mosaic law if you like medium rare or rare. Okay? But if you kill a cow and just eat the raw meat without cooking it in the blood, now, okay, you're violating Mosaic law. No blood eating. And um, why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life, that is the nephesh, the soul. Sometimes translated soul, sometimes translated life. Sometimes I just call it soul life. The nephesh of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. And this is why plants don't cut it. This is why animals, animals, by the way, are called nephesh in certain passages. That animals either are souls or have souls. Animals are, you know, mobile beings. Not like plants. Plants don't bleed. All right. And so the animal takes the place. The animal sheds its life for the atonement of your soul. And there's this link between nephesh, between soul and blood. And that's key to understanding this. And so in verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is blood, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. And um, even your aliens that are sojourning and others. Um, verse 14, as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh. For the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So there's a doctrinal principle here. And I believe there's real issues here that uh, get overlooked in different things. And, and as cultish and wrong as the Jehovah's Witnesses are, they do have a doctrine as it pertains to blood transfusions. And it comes from a biblical conviction. Okay? Now please, I'm, I'm on tape, I'm going to be recorded and so when I'm getting misquoted I've got proof. Jehovah's Witness is a cult, okay? Charles Taze Russell was an antichrist and a wicked man. I don't subscribe to anything the Watchtower Tract Society puts out there when they come and knock on your door, alright? However, they do have a point that they make when they find blood transfusions to be problematic based upon this passage. 
If the soul is in the blood, and I would ask as a doctrinal Bible church pastor, okay, uh, if, if, if the blood contains an aspect of Adam's original sin, that is our sin nature, our curse, that we're all in Adam, what are we doing with transfusions? What are we doing with organ transplants? What are we doing with donations and, and different things? Are we in fact cross-pollinating Adamic sin natures? What are we doing? See, now I don't have all the answers because I'm not a doctor and I'm just asking Bible questions related to this passage and other passages of the Scriptures. That's a side trip. No, no charge for that. Alright, back on track. The uh, blood is the key to understanding this. Which is why, by the way, the covering of Adam and Eve's nakedness and the offerings of Cain and Abel, this is a doctrine that was given long before Mosaic law was ever codified. This is a principle that goes back to the very beginning, the day that Adam and Eve became sinners. The principle that blood must be shed, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Yes, it's codified in Mosaic law, it's stipulated in Mosaic law, Leviticus 17 is the basis for understanding Hebrews 9, but even before Leviticus 17, we're dealing with a foundational principle that goes back to Adam and Eve. It goes back to the very beginning. Because they cover, they try to cover their nakedness in Genesis 3, and they did so without the shedding of blood. In Genesis 3, 7, join me there. Genesis 3, 7. Either flip or tap or do what you do. Manipulate your displayed Bible text in such a way so as to be reading with me from Genesis 3 7. This is curious. The, um, the serpent deceived him, deceived her anyway. Adam knew what he was doing. And she ate. In verse 6, she ate, but her eyes are not opened until Adam eats. Please pay attention to this. Adam blamed the woman, but it's not the woman's fault. It's not the woman's responsibility. It's the man's responsibility. And she became a sinner in Adam when Adam ate, not on the basis of her sin. So uh, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Please, please, please understand. It was Adam's original sin that opened his eyes and Eve's eyes. It was not the woman's sin. She became a sinner in Adam, not on the basis of what she earned or deserved, not on the basis of what she did. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked, which they've been naked all along, right? How long did they walk in the garden together? How long were they naked together? How long, you know, they're the only people in the world. It's not a problem being naked if the animals are looking at you. Who cares? Okay. And we don't know. Were they around for a month, a year, 10 minutes? How long did it take for Adam and Eve to sin? We don't know. But whatever the case is, now they know that they're naked. Now they have a conscience that's impacted by their disobedience before God. 
And now the effects of their personal sin are already having consequences in the shame. So they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Guess what? They're still naked. Okay? They might have wrapped their bodies with vegetable matter. They might have wrapped their bodies with, you know, plant material. And uh, they're still naked. And they admit that when they hide. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife hid themselves. Well, why hide? They're still na- they're not, if they're not naked anymore, if they're covered with the vegetable wrappings, they should not hide. They should just talk to God and show off their new, you know, their new outfit. Okay? Sometimes guys are not really noticeable. You know, they were kind of thick. And, and we don't notice, you know, and then we hurt our wife's feelings, or some girl, we hurt their feelings when we fail to notice that it's a new outfit they're wearing, or that they've got a new hairstyle, or something's different, right? Well, God's clearly going to notice their new outfit, because <laughs> they've never worn clothes before, and, uh, but they're still ashamed, and they're hiding, because I think even their fallen conscience knows they're still naked. There's no blood that's been shed yet. How could they be forgiven? And so uh, God calls to them and says, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I thought you were clothed in fig leaves. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now God knows all these answers. He's not asking questions because he's ignorant. He's asking questions because he wants them to confess. He wants them to confess. Own up to it. If we confess our sins, what happens? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He wants Adam to confess. Instead, he's blaming, making excuses. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me. (laughs) Oh my, she gave, she gave me from the tree and I say, you gave me, you gave me a crummy woman, Lord. I mean, you could have given me a better woman. Give me a more obedient woman. You gave me this one and I just, you know, all right. They're all making excuses. When the Lord decides now, and there's more, there's doctrine throughout this whole chapter, but now when you get down to what he does to cover their nakedness, it's in verse 21. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. How unfortunate that they didn't have a baby before this sin event. So now that they're uh, both sinners, what, what are they going to have? They're going to give birth to sinners. That's right. Dogs have puppies, cats have kittens, sinners have sinners. And... Uh, so he names her Eve because she was the mother of all living. Feminists today don't like the fact that the man gives her the name, but that's what it is. All right. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Vegetables don't cut it. Plants don't cut it. There's no blood with that. There's no animal death with that. There's no nephesh being shed so that a nephesh can be atoned for. With, with, a, with a vegetable sacrifice. It takes the death of an animal. And so he made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Last week I actually had a, 
a guy try to argue the point that says, well, that doesn't mean an animal had to die. Okay. For the sake of argument, I'll, I'll suppose right there with you. Let's, let's pretend maybe that could happen. Explain it to me now. Show me the animal that you can skin and wear the clothes. Yeah, that's not, this, this animal died. That's the whole point. And then he teaches the doctrine again in the very next chapter. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. And what I do find interesting is that he drives them out of the garden so they don't eat from the tree of life. Because these mortal sinners could eat from that tree and live forever as mortal sinners, and God doesn't want that. So he drives them out of the tree of life. He's cha- he posts the cherub there. Fascinating, because the first use of cherubim, the first use of sword. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are introduced here that aren't explained in chapter 1 or 2 or 3, and yet here they are. What's a cherub? <laughs> you know, It's not in the six days that are described that we've read in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3. There's a lot more questions in Genesis than answers in Genesis. All right. So the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have acquired, I have kana, gotten, a man-child, the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, there's no mention of relations, there's no mention of conception, there's just relations is said once, conception is said once, and then birth is said twice, which led all the ancient rabbis in their commentaries to believe that they were twins, that uh, it was a single conception event, and Cain and Abel were twins, or whatever the case may be. Maybe that's eisegesis, but what have you. But there's an older brother, there's a younger brother, and Abel was born second. Abel was a keeper of flocks, Cain was a tiller of the ground. Nothing wrong with any of that. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Here's the problem. Where's the blood? All right, where's the blood? Cain, Abel on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Well, you bring in fat portions. That means you've cut the animal up already. Okay. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. What's the difference between the two offerings? Now we can, if we want, we can go to Hebrews 11 and we can say that, well, it was by faith. Uh, but beyond that, just look, staying in this text here, the difference is one has blood, the other doesn't have blood. It's the same thing with chapter 3, with the fig leaves versus the animal skins. It's the same doctrine taught twice now to the first two generations of humanity. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Notice how an angry unbeliever out of, you know, first of all, he's an unbeliever. He could never be in fellowship. But now he's an angry unbeliever. And the Lord still comes to him with questions. Just like he came to Adam with questions. Not because he's ignorant, not because he wants information, but because he's giving the opportunity for confession. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You going to stay a, sin, a slave to sin all your life, or do you want to get saved? And Cain told Abel, his brother. 
They had a conversation related to what the Lord had taught him, the doctrine here of the blood sacrifice and the necessity for victory over sin and rescue from sin slavery. The brothers were able to discuss spiritual matters together. And so it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel's brother and killed him. So all the discussion happened in the tents or wherever they lived in their home and then they went out away from the witnesses and committed murder. Anyway, both of these chapters, the covering of of Adam and Eve's nakedness, the offering of Cain and Abel, both chapters are teaching the necessity of bloodshedding long before such doctrines were codified under law. Verse 23. Back to Hebrews 9. So according to law, almost all things are cleansed with blood. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The therefore is a logical therefore, and it goes the opposite direction than what you're thinking right now. Okay? Uh, What you're thinking right now is that, well... Because they did all those animal ritual sacrifices, because they had all that blood in their in their liturgy, they had all that blood in their secular or in their in their worship, in the replica, because they had all that blood back then, Jesus now has to fulfill the reality, right? That's actually the direct opposite of what we want to get out of this. The reality was the point all along. The reality is what the Father had in His plan, which is why blood sacrifice was prescribed under Mosaic law, which is why the replica was given blood as a cleansing agent instead of water or instead of some other cleansing agent. Blood was the cleansing agent because the reality is the death of Christ will be required to redeem humanity. The death of Christ will be required to deliver the new covenant to the Jewish people. So the necessity for the copies, for the facsimile to be cleansed with blood, the heavenly things to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. Better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Jesus went to the cross not to do any replica ritual. He went to the cross to obtain eternal redemption. And this is the point that's being made here again and again and again. The earthly sanctuaries, altars, furnishings and garments being replicas and types of the heavenly realities are quite appropriately cleansed and atoned for with blood sacrifices. Well, of course earthly sanctuaries, altars, furnishings, and garments. Remember, which came first? The chicken or the egg? Which came first? The Levitical ritual or the heavenly reality? See, we think, well, the earthly ritual came first because Moses preceded Christ, but wait a minute. 
Moses built that earthly replica based upon a heavenly reality that came first, that preceded the earthly replica. Before Moses, I am, right? Jesus said before Abraham, I am. Before Moses, I am. And so, quite appropriately, they would be cleansed and atoned for with blood sacrifices. So the replicas can be cleansed by the shadow, by the typology. But the reality, the heavenly sanctuaries, altars, furnishings, and garments required the soul life of Jesus Christ in spiritual death. The heavenly sanctuaries, altars, furnishings, and garments required the soul life of Jesus Christ in spiritual death. Isaiah 53.12. If you've never been taught this, the spiritual death of Christ versus the physical death of Christ, that is a very important doctrine. Colonel Thiem wrote it. He wrote it in his uh, Blood of Christ and uh, wrote it in a number of different ways. And a lot of pastors have been teaching spiritual death versus physical death. Um, John Gill in the 1700s was teaching spiritual death versus physical death. Okay, somehow John Gill might have, must have been on theme tapes back in the 1700s. We say that kind of amusingly because uh, Pastor Theme gets uh, accused of making stuff up, of inventing whole realms of theology that have never appeared before in the history of the church, and it's just, it's just insane. All right. Isaiah 53 says, He poured out His soul. Isaiah 53, 12. I'm going to be running out of time, so I've got to wrap up here, but Isaiah 53, this passage that's ignored by every Jewish friend you've ever had, the rabbis don't teach it. Most uh, of your Jewish friends never even read this part of Isaiah before. Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That is, God the Father was pleased to crush Jesus Christ, God the Son, putting him to grief. If he, Jesus Christ, God the Son, would render himself a guilt offering, he, Jesus Christ, God the Son, will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Because Jesus Christ honored his heavenly Father, he will live long on this earth and the blessings are provided there. Remember the first commandment with promise? Jesus fulfilled that bigger than you and I ever will. Obedient to God the Father. As a result of the anguish of his nephesh, the nephesh of Jesus Christ, the God-man, his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. This is the basis for propitiation. Why is the Father satisfied? By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out his nephesh. He poured out his soul. He poured out himself. You know, your soul is the real you. It's not the body you walk around in. It's your soul. That's the real you. He poured out himself, his soul, to death. So he is numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. When he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, because he'd already spiritually died. It was not his physical death that saved you and me. He'd already spiritually died. The Father was satisfied. So he takes up his life again and says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he physically dies when he breathes his last. 
Don't confuse the physical death with the spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and these deep, deep doctrines you're giving us here in the book of Hebrews. And Father, it has encompassed everything from Exodus to Leviticus back to Genesis 3 to Isaiah. There is so much, Father, that the uh, author of Hebrews just takes for granted, that assumes his readers are familiar with this entire background of Levitical law and Old Testament history. And Father, we want to put these things together as well so we find where we fit. What is the part of the bride? What is the part of the church? What is our relationship to Israel? So we can understand our relationship to the new covenant. Father, our Savior is the mediator of the new covenant and we are in Christ. He's the mediator, we are the ministers of the new covenant. I thank you for this powerful truth. I pray that we will understand these things that you've taught us this morning, that in the coming days and weeks we will chew on them and digest them and understand them and appreciate them and then begin to live in the glory that is the uh, blessing that we have, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, show us our role as Melchizedek believer priests of the church age. Thank you, Father, for a congregation that studies here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. Father, for a congregation that is humble before your word to study to show themselves approved. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.